Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Amica Insurance. Amica Insurance is all about empathy. They know your auto, home, and life insurance are more than just policies. Home insurance is about protecting the life you've built. Auto insurance is there to protect you on the road ahead. That's why Amica takes a consultative approach to help protect what matters most to you. They are a customer-owned insurance company that puts your needs first, and their representatives are available 24-7 for claim-related matters. As Amica says, empathy is our best policy. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Discover. When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. That means no waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. Real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey there, podcast listeners. This week's episode comes from our archive, which now includes more than 450 episodes, all of which you can get free on any podcast app. This one goes all the way back to 2017. It's called How Stupid Is Our Obsession With Lawns? Hope you enjoy. Where I live in the great northeast of the United States, it is finally summertime. When you get outside, it's beautiful. The trees, the flowers, and of course, the lawns. Who doesn't love a good lawn? It looks good, smells good, feels good. For a lot of people, a lawn is the perfect form of nature. Even though, let's be honest, the lawns we like don't actually occur in nature. Even though the process of producing such a lawn is full of the most unnatural activity. Even though this unnatural slice of nature requires so many inputs, the water, the fertilizer, the weed killers, the mowers and trimmers and the leaf blowers, the fuel to power all this machinery, the fuel to power the trucks, to transport the people who run the machinery, all in pursuit of the perfect lawn. is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. Give me briefly as you can a history of the lawn. Uh, if you go look at the Oxford English Dictionary and try to find the word lawn, you'll see that uh, it dates from the 16th century, from Old English for uh, an open space or what was called the glade. Ted Steinberg is a history and law professor at Case Western Reserve. I'm the author of uh, several books, uh, including American Green, uh, The Obsessive Quest for the Perfect Lawn, and these lawns, as it were, that existed back in uh, 16th, 17th, 18th century England were typically found on estates. Now, talk about how America got into lawns and the degree to which they upped the game. So lawns go way back in American history. Washington and Jefferson, of course, had lawns. Nevertheless, even well into the 20th century, 
uh, people, especially working class people, were more concerned with, how shall I say, the use value of their yards as opposed to the exchange value of the of the landscape. And what I mean by that is that working class people would raise uh, small livestock in their yards or raise uh, vegetables. Uh, that said, um, the really big expansion in the lawnscape, if I can call it that, happened uh, after the Second World War uh, with suburbanization. This is Levittown, one of the most remarkable housing developments ever conceived. Between 1947, uh, 1951 or two or so, uh, the Levitts mass-produced some 17,000 homes on what had been uh, a bunch of potato fields on Long Island in New York. Well, every one of those 17,000 homes had a lawn surrounding it. If you look back at the uh, deeds for Levittown and other places, you'll find that there are covenants in them requiring the owner of the new Levittown home to mow their yard once a week. Yes, that old potato patch has come to a good end. Today, Americans spend roughly $60 billion a year in what's known as the turf grass industry. This covers lawn supplies, lawn services, and so on. That figure includes sports fields, commercial properties, and private lawns. Lawns account for about two-thirds of the total square footage. And how much square footage is that? That's about 14.5 million acres of turf. That's Christina Malese. I'm a scientist by training, and I worked for NASA for over 10 years. Forty-odd million acres of turf. For reference, that is bigger than Iowa. Malaysia hadn't set out to measure the size of America's lawn. In fact, quite the opposite. I was uh, working to map the amount of paved area in the United States. Mapping out paved areas included using satellite data that measured nighttime light emissions. Light emissions that come from basically turning on streetlights at night. She and her team also used aerial photography, which, of course, showed more than just paved areas. Yeah, we also took measurements of how much lawn area there was and how many shrubs, shrub area and tree area. And that's how they came up with 40.5 million acres of turf, which is just a bit less than 2% of the United States. Paved areas, meanwhile, make up just 1.3%. The sheer volume of grass got Malaysia thinking. How are lawns actually functioning as an ecosystem? We use water, but also fertilizer and pesticides, and then we use lawn mowers and leaf blowers. But they're plants, so they photosynthesize, they absorb carbon. What's the balance between what we put in and what we put out? And so I decided this would be a worthwhile question to ask The specific question being whether lawns are, from a carbon perspective, net positive or net negative. She began by trying to tally how much water people use on their lawns. The standard recommendation, especially where rainfall doesn't do the job, is one inch of water per week. And I came up to some numbers that I could not believe. What were these unbelievable numbers? The total was about 20 trillion gallons per year on lawn watering. Want a little context for that number? Consider that we use just 30 trillion gallons to irrigate all our crops. Next, Malaysia calculated how much carbon the turf grass stores in the soil. And then I subtracted from it the 
amount of carbon that was associated with nitrogen, the fertilization, and the amount of carbon that was emitted by using a typical lawnmower. And what did she learn? I learned that the turf would become a sink of carbon. And this is not surprising. Uh, a plant, given plenty of attention, photosynthesizes carbon. But uh, it comes at the cost of producing the fertilizer or mowing the grass and all the industry that comes around it. So even with those costs included, lawns look pretty good from a carbon perspective. On the other hand, Malaysia's model didn't include inputs like the carbon emissions from the trucks that lawn crews drive or the original manufacture of all that lawn care equipment, nor did it include the energy used to deliver water to households and clean it for human consumption. We should not forget that this is uh, drinking water. I did not account for those costs. And as just about any economist will tell you, Water is often woefully underpriced, which can lead to overuse, especially if you're growing a grass species that wasn't meant to grow where you live. Kentucky bluegrass or uh, creeping bentgrass evolved in the cool, moist uh, climes of northern Europe. Ted Steinberg again. And it's not all that easy to grow them here in the continental United States uh, and especially in arid parts of North America. If you go to California, you'll find still uh, lawns with cool season turf grass. Every square foot of that turf grass requires 28 gallons of water, roughly speaking, per year, every square foot. But that's for the coastal environment. If you move inland to uh, a more arid part of California, that number increases to 37 gallons of water or more per square foot of lawn. We waste so much water. That's Eric Garcetti. I'm the mayor of the city of Los Angeles. We spoke with Garcetti back in 2016 when California was deep in drought. In Los Angeles, lawns and landscaping use a whopping 50 percent of Los Angeles's water. And the drought had doubled what the city was paying to import water. So Garcetti used incentives to change behavior. The city paid residents to install rain barrels to capture water for their lawns. It paid them to replace their lawns with drought-tolerant plants. I said, if you have a lawn and you're using it, great, keep it and pay for the water to water it. But if you're not, well, let us pay you to switch that out to beautiful flowering green plants that use a lot less water. And we were able to do that with over 50 million square feet of lawn uh, just in the last couple of years. We reduced our water in the face of this drought, uh, our water usage by 19% without having to fine anybody, without having to you know, crack down with the water police, but by inspiring people through public education and rebates, giving them free cisterns, changing out their toilets, all those sorts of things. What works in California won't necessarily work elsewhere. And California is particularly aggressive with environmental standards. It recently passed regulations aimed at lowering emissions on lawn care equipment, which tends to have particularly dirty little engines. They're also really noisy. If you just hear the sound of a leaf blower, it has these really interesting low-frequency and high-frequency components. That's Erica Walker. She is an epidemiologist at Brown University. Before that, she was an environmental researcher at Boston University. So not only is it traveling inside of your walls, but it has this high-pitched hum that's just really annoying. In Boston, Walker helped compile a citywide noise report which mapped, among other things, leaf blower annoyance levels. 
A lot of places have banned leaf blowers or restricted their hours, especially the noisier gas-powered models. Walker was interested in the relationship between noise and public health in a city like Boston. Sleep disturbances, I think, the, the direct relationship between sound and negative health. The World Health Organization suggests that daytime noise levels shouldn't exceed 55 decibels. Walker wondered how leaf blowers registered, even if you weren't the one blowing the leaves. We see that even when you move 400 feet away from the point of operation, you're still getting sound levels that are in excess of what the World Health Organization recommends for um, daytime sound levels. But then we also learned that these leaf blowers have a strong contribution from the lower frequencies. It has an ability to travel very long distances and penetrate through the walls. So it's really hard to mitigate. And we see in the epidemiological literature that low frequency sound is creating negative health effects above and beyond high frequency sound. So what have we learned so far? We have a lot of lawn in America, and our pursuit of the perfect lawn is noisy and resource and labor intensive. Lawns do, however, serve as carbon sinks, and of course they're beautiful, at least many people think so, and useful for playing, for picnicking, for relaxing. Coming up on Freakonomics Radio, we love lawns so much, we even plant them beside our highways. A standard clover leaf takes up about 16 acres of lawn. And if you don't want to have a lawn in your yard, what can you have? You know, I think the best year I had it was like 2,000 pounds of sweet potato. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example, combining assertive on-road performance with signature Range Rover refinement and commanding all-terrain capability. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable yet. Range Rover Sport redefines sporting luxury, an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. Combining dynamic sporting personality with the peerless refinement you expect, Range Rover Sport communicates power, performance, and agility. Advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Canva. Supercharge your work with AI-powered Magic Write in Canva Docs. You can just describe what you want to say in a few words, and Magic Write will generate a draft in seconds. You can use it for sales proposals, marketing plans, job descriptions, meeting agendas, you name it. Tweak your draft, and you're done. It is a serious time saver, and the perfect way to beat the blank page. Generate your draft with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, 
Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Why did we make this episode about the costs and benefits of lawns? Mostly because of you. We occasionally ask for Economics Radio listeners for story ideas, and weirdly, quite a few of them concerned lawns. Pat Allen from Trinity, Florida, wrote, What is up with the American addiction to lawns? John Faulkner of Arlington, Virginia, complained about noisy, smelly lawnmowers. And then there was Alan Turner. I'm from uh, Newcastle, Delaware. My uh, formal training, my initial career was in landscape architecture. And right now, I'm looking at the highway median at the rest stop on I-95, just south of Wilmington, Delaware. Turner's pet peeve is what's in that highway median. Grass. And it looks like this grass gets mowed three times in the summer, let's say. It's not just in highway medians, but also those cloverleaf interchanges. A standard cloverleaf takes up about 16 acres of lawn. Turner understands why these are all grass. Grass is cheap. Grass is the cheapest ground cover you can install. The problem with grass is that it's also the most expensive ground cover to maintain. And it has to be maintained, mowed especially, for safety, for good sight lines. So you've got all that mowing and all those traffic delays when the mowers are out there in the medians. Turner's idea is to plant highway medians with plants that don't require maintenance like grass does. The seed might cost slightly more, but that's the only difference. And then you'd get a permanent ground cover that needs no mowing. I can honestly say this is the first time I've ever been asked to talk to anybody about roadside vegetation management. That's Doug Hecox with the Federal Highway Administration, which advises states on how to maintain their highway grass. Nobody asks us about plants. They ask us about traffic and potholes. I think conservatively, we've got about 17 million acres of roadside vegetation. Roadside grass dates back to the early days of auto travel. Having a grassy area near the road in case somebody broke down or wanted to just rest after this ordeal of driving around was a very tempting option. So that's what began. And as time went on, grass sort of became an expectation because everywhere you went, there it was. And when you didn't have it, people noticed it. That was the prevailing attitude. We want these roads to look inviting. We want them to look like your front yard. That began to change as early as the 1960s as state and local governments realized how many resources went toward maintaining all that grass. And in the 70s and 80s, we began to realize the water was really a big issue. And states dealing with tight budgets began to plant native grasses, things that were a little bit more water efficient. And grasses that didn't require as much mowing. But still, how about Alan Turner's idea to get rid of grass entirely in favor of something that requires no mowing? I think he does have a point. However, I'm also uh, not willing to say that states haven't already considered that. Uh, There may be reasons why they have to plant what they have. Budgets are so tight at the state DOT level. Okay, so what about not replanting, but also just not mowing the grass at all? If you were to let something just go wild or return to nature, that sounds great. It sounds easy. It sounds cheap. And it is. It's not necessarily the best choice, though. That's where the invasive species thrive. 
And that becomes a little habitat for, you know, like in the south, you've got kudzu that grows all over the place. And you've got other kinds of invasive species that pop up and start to proliferate, invading local neighborhood lawns or farmers' crops. It can get out of control. I totally understand what he's saying, and that's the assumption. That is Sarah Wigginton. But I think we have to look and see if what we assume is really what's going to happen. And that's basically what we decided to do. She's an ecologist who earned her Ph.D. last year at the University of Rhode Island. My ecological research focuses on finding creative solutions to human-caused environmental issues. She and her colleagues had a question about invasive species. The question that we were trying to answer was if invasive species actually do proliferate in uh, roadside areas that are taken out of the regular mowing management strategies. They took advantage of a sort of natural experiment in Rhode Island. The Department of Transportation typically mows its roadsides anywhere from three to ten times a year. But over the past decade, it decided to reduce mowing in some areas and stop entirely in others. We classified that as passive restoration because you're just taking it out of the mowing circulation and then letting it go, letting succession take course. This let Wigginton and her colleagues compare the number of invasive plant species in the mowed areas versus the unmowed, which had begun to grow wild. They also looked at young forests nearby, which had never been mowed. How did they collect those data? It's um, not super glamorous. We basically lay out really long tape using compasses to make, you know, straight angles. And then in a very, very time-consuming process, we document every single species that we see in these subplots. What'd they find? We found that invasive species are not proliferating significantly in these areas that are taken out of the traditional mowing scheme. They have the same number of invasives as both the young forests and the traditionally mowed areas. So I would advise that state DOTs move as much of their land as is reasonable to a reduced or low or no mow management scheme. Well, I think the easiest thing to do is to elect to have what I call a low-maintenance lawn. That's Ted Steinberg. Again, he is talking about personal lawns now, not highway medians. Overtreatment is the single biggest problem that we have here in the United States with respect to lawn care. So right away, scale back on the chemical applications. You can get away with three applications— of fertilizer per season. People also probably need to actually learn a little bit about the ecology of their yard. To do it right, you probably should get a soil test. Not a big deal. Leave the clippings on the lawn, for God's sakes. Don't put them out on the curb because the clippings break down and they return nutrients to the soil. And I would argue, consider stopping the irrigation. Brown's not so bad. Oh, I think you just lost a lot of our lawn-loving audience right there. Oh, I think, that's, that's too bad. I'm not saying I disagree uh. <laughs> with you. I'm just saying that I think when most people think of a lawn, brown is death. Brown is the enemy. Brown is not a lawn. The next time your lawn, if you're worried about this, it turns brown, go out there, get down on your hands and knees and look at the, at the grass. It's not dead, most of them. I mean, it, if you have a horrible drought, okay, I get it. <laughs> okay. Uh, but if it's not, when it appears to be brown, it's actually dormant. And you'll see a little bit of green where the blade meets the soil. The individual plants, most of them, are still alive. Ted, I think even you would have to admit that if you got your way and if America suddenly woke up and said, you know what, a low-maintenance lawn is good enough, it makes a lot of sense, 
Aesthetically, it's fine. Environmentally, it's probably better. Noise-wise, et cetera, et cetera. But think of the jobs you're killing. I mean, this is a pretty substantial part of the labor market, especially for low-education workers. Are you, Ted Steinberg, professor of history and law, willing to take the heat for killing off all those jobs? I think one of the big problems that we have in the United States today, maybe even in the world, is a lack of meaningful employment. But actually, it might not be as dire as you're implying here. You're still going to need people to mow the lawn. Maybe not as much. You don't really need necessarily to mow your lawn once a week. So this could represent a savings, obviously, to consumers. And it might not be the case uh, that the floor is going to fall out of the job market because Ted Steinberg advocates for you know, less in the way of perfection in lawn care. There's also the possibility of repurposing your yard entirely. Maybe a tennis court or an outdoor library or taking a page from our past. Hey, Jim, my name's Stephen. How are you? Good. Hi, Stephen. I'm Jim. Jim Kovaleski is a front yard farmer in Newport Ritchie, Florida, a small city just outside of Tampa. All right, so let me ask you this. You came up in lawn care. Um, did you enjoy that work? You know, I might have thought I did, um, you know, but now every time I see a lawn trailer, I just shiver. You know, it's just like terror. I don't No, So I, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. And, you know, I, I had to use so many chemicals, especially in, in um, you know, as I came to Florida, because the lawns they got here, they've got kinds of grasses that will not grow without pesticides and herbicides. You can't get them to do anything. But. Vegetables and fruit are a different story. He grows sweet potatoes and black-eyed peas, star fruit and avocados. Lettuce and broccoli and cabbage and cauliflower. Kovaleski turned a front yard into productive farmland. He started with his own yard, then expanded to his mom's house down the street. And then my ex-wife just bought a house right next door to her three years ago and offered me her front yard, which is full sun. So it's allowed me to have a lot more growing space. He sells his produce at a local farmer's market. You know, I think the best year I had it was like 2,000 pounds of sweet potatoes. But theoretically, if I get better at this, this should be producing like 15,000 pounds. I cannot believe how much value can come out of a small piece of land. Kovaleski gardens all winter in Florida. And then he drives his 1965 cherry red pickup truck to Maine, where he does the same thing. In both places, he's known for his salad mix. I call it a greens mix, and I kind of plant very diverse. Like, it could be, you know, a hundred different leafy greens, and I'll go through the garden and kind of mix it as I pick it, and then I wash it and spin it and put it in a bag and sell that. And, you know, I'll sell, you know, in Florida, I probably sell 2,000, 2,500 of those bags a year. And in Maine, it's pretty much the same mix and, you know, maybe 1,000 up there. I don't, it's a shorter season and it's not as populated. So I, I make more of my money in Florida for sure. So how much money do you make? You know, I'm doing really well. I, you know, I do keep track because um, I want to show people how much you can make because it's pretty much a cash business. I could hide stuff, but I haven't. I've kept track for the last three years or Two years, really good. So I think first year that I kept good track was like 24 grand and then 27. And I bet I'm on a pace of like 35 this year. And so I have very little expenses. So, you know, 35 grand's a lot of money. I don't know where to spend it, actually. Do you have any help or no? It's just you. 
No, you know, I've you know, I'm kind of a fuss budget, and um, you know, I've 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 learned that you know it's more stressful for me to try to work with other people and make things happen. It's more of my focus is to see how productive a small piece of land can be, and I'm seeing that every year I'm getting better at it. Are there or were there any legal issues or ordinances you had to deal with to plant a garden in a front yard there? You know, we're fortunate here because, you know, it is a non-de-destructed community, so there's not much for uh, ordinances. And so there's nothing against the law to do this. I mean, potentially there could be some enforcement issues about, you know, height of vegetation. But it's always looked so good that was never an issue. So you sound like a pretty live-and-let-live kind of guy. But on the other hand, it sounds like you would be pretty happy if you started a front yard garden revolution, yeah? I would. You know, I wouldn't think I'd be one to lead something like that, but I've found that, you know, people follow things that work. I haven't done any promotion over this 10 years, but there's been a lot of press. I've been amazed at how people are just longing for this. And, you know, I think it's poised to take off. And so, you know, potentially we can put people back to work on the land. A farm in every yard? That is hardly the direction our economy has been moving in, either the agricultural economy or the lawn care economy. But who's to say? The rise of the lawn was probably not foreseen. Would a return to personal farming be any more surprising? That's our show for today. We hope you enjoyed this trip into the archive as much as we did. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, take care of yourself and, if you can, someone else, too. Freakonomics Radio is produced by Stitcher and Renbud Radio, and it's part of the Freakonomics Radio Network, which also includes No Stupid Questions, people I mostly admire, and the Freakonomics Radio Book Club. We can be reached at radio at Freakonomics.com. This episode was produced by Christopher Wirth. Our staff also includes Allison Craiglow, Greg Rippon, Joel Meyer, Trisha Bobita, Zach Lipinski, Mary DeDuke, Rebecca Lee Douglas, Brent Katz, Morgan Levy, Emma Terrell, Lyric Bowditch, Jasmine Klinger, and Jacob Clementi. You can get the entire archive of Freakonomics Radio or any of our shows on any podcast app. If you'd like to read a transcript or the show notes of Freakonomics Radio, that's at Freakonomics.com. As always, thanks for listening. Now, Ted, what is your favorite kind of grass? My favorite grass? My favorite grass is zoysia. How do you say it? Zoysia? That's how my father said it. I don't know. People from Brooklyn say things in all kinds of ways. You know, you know you'll find out later. Oh, that's not the way you actually say that word. You're from New York. The Freakonomics Radio Network. Stitcher. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Meet Janice. Unfortunately, her thing is sneeze attacks every time spring returns. I literally sneezed 40 times in a row once. Luckily for Janice, at the Walmart Pharmacy, she can get over-the-counter allergy relief for things like sneezing, runny nose, and watery eyes, fast with online pickup or delivery. No more suffering? That's nothing to sneeze at. (laughs) I see what you did there. Help survive allergy season with fast online pickup or delivery from Walmart. Welcome to an easier pharmacy. Welcome to your Walmart. 
Economics Radio is sponsored by Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. 